It's not going to the inn. It's not the magi coming from the east. It's not the angelic announcement to the shepherds. It's not even the announcement to Mary and Joseph's dream uh, say, you know, from the angel saying, you know, don't be afraid to take Mary home to be your wife. It's not any of those things. What gives all of those things their significance is the fact that each of them is an aspect of the fulfillment of promises that God had made hundreds and thousands of years even earlier that the Messiah would come. And these are all the things that tell us how God's promise was worked out. But what gave those things their significance was the fact of God's promise, which goes back all the way, believe it or not, to the Garden of Eden when God promised that a Messiah would come, a seed of the woman who would be born, who would crush the serpent and who would uh, eliminate sin and reverse the curse and bring an end to death through his coming. And all down through human history, generation after generation of God's people looked forward to this, the coming of this one person, the Messiah, who was to be born. And so this morning, I want to look this morning at a passage that is not necessarily a, what we think of as a, quote, Christmas passage. If you have a family tradition of reading the Christmas story, this might not be one that you go to. But this is one of the great passages that gives us an understanding of the significance of Christmas and why we celebrate it in the first place. And it's in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah is one of the longest uh, books in the Old Testament. Uh, this, is, this is from the section at the, from chapter 40 to 66 at the end of Isaiah uh, are known as the servant songs that are about the servant of Yahweh who will come, who's the Messiah who is going to come and what he's going to do and what he's going to be like and what he's, who he's going to be is all described in these servant passages. And Isaiah 53 is one of the great uh, servant passages that tell us about the coming of Messiah, that Messiah is coming and what's he going to do and who, who's he going to be and what's it going to be like. And so Isaiah writes this, writes these words. He says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing is in appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, and through And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, 
and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Uh, if you look at this passage, it breaks down basically into three sections. In the first section, it talks about how the Messiah is going to come, but he's going to be not celebrated but rejected, and not regarded but really unrecognized by the people to whom he comes. In other words, after thousands of years of promise that the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, Isaiah has written 800 years before the birth of Christ, that God's people are to be looking forward to this person, and yet when he comes, they won't know who he is, and when they, he identifies himself, they'll reject his claim. Remember, you know, one of the things that you, you read as you read the Christmas story is that Jesus comes into the world through Mary, and they go to Bethlehem, the hometown of Joseph, and they're going to the inn, and they, all they can find is a stable because there's no room for them in the inn. Even the fact, by the way, that they are going to the inn is significant. Because the inn is not where you went if you were a respectable, honorable, upstanding citizen. That was where the, that was where the people who were regarded as, as low class and the riffraff, that was where they went. And this is a place where Joseph very likely has family. And yet none of his family takes him in. He has to go to the inn. And when he goes to the inn, they don't even have room for him there. Say, well, you can sleep in the barn. And so the Savior of the world is born in a barn. And so Isaiah says, who has believed our message? And the answer to his question is, is implied. No one has believed our message. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is the symbol of God's power, that God is acting in power in bringing Messiah into the world. And yet no one notices. To whom has it been revealed? And it says that like a root out of dry ground, he will spring up. And he'll have no beauty or majesty that we should desire him. When he comes as Messiah, no one will notice and he will grow up, according to Isaiah, in the middle of nowhere. He will just spring up like a shoot in the desert. And no one will know where he is. And did that happen, by the way? Yes, it did. Did you know that Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, is a town that is so small and so obscure that it's not even mentioned in the Old Testament? Hundreds of towns are mentioned in the Old Testament, and any one of any significance is mentioned. But Nazareth is such a little, dusty, little, nowhere place, it's not even mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. And Jesus 
is born and nobody recognizes him as Messiah, except for a few shepherds, a couple of wise men from the east that see a star. And, and by the way, if you've not seen that video, you need to be here next week for Sunday school. It is worth seeing, the star of Bethlehem, about what God did, in the, even in the heavens, to announce the coming of his son. And no one noticed. And while he's growing up, he's like a plant that grows up in the middle of nowhere. And, he, and no one notices. And even though Jesus grew up as a descendant of David, he had no... He, by then, the, the kingdom of David had long since disappeared. And his dad is not king. He's, what, carpenter. And so he doesn't have any kingly glory. You know, if you see a king coming down the street, normally what you, you would stop and you would at least watch the procession go by. Because kings have a glory about them and a form and a majesty that's attractive so that you would give them honor and respect. But Jesus doesn't have any of that. He's not going to have any of that. And then on top of that, he's going to be despised and rejected. Was Jesus despised and rejected? Yes. Was he a man of sorrows acquainted with grief? Yes. What's the shortest verse in your Bible? Jesus wept, right? <sighs> he was be like one from whom men hide their faces. He won't be held in honor. He'll be dishonored and hated. And isn't that amazing that here the Messiah is coming and no one will care, no one will notice, no one will celebrate. And God himself will, in a sense, sneak into history. The Messiah will come and be rejected, and the Messiah will also suffer, and he'll suffer not just because he's the victim somehow of some sort of unjust maneuvering by his friends in collusion with authorities who don't like him, although that's part of it. He suffers deliberately as a substitute for you and for me. And that's verse 4 to 6. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sharp sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. That really happened. In the Jewish mind, there was a strong connection between sin and death, such that if you sinned, you died, and if you got executed, you deserved it. And if you got executed by being hanged on a tree, according to Deuteronomy, this is what it says. Cursed is anyone hanged on a tree. Cursed by God is anyone who dies hanging on a tree. The most ignominious death a person could have would be death by being hanged like Jesus was. And so in the Jewish mind, they look at Jesus and they see his life and they see the end of it and they go, well, here's a guy who got what he deserved and who is cursed by God, just like Isaiah said. We considered him smitten by God and afflicted. But what was he doing? He was taking up our infirmities and our sorrows. He was pierced. Was Jesus pierced? Hands, feet, head, side. He was pierced not for his sin, but for ours. That The whole point of his coming won't be understood by the people who see it. He's pierced for our transgressions. 
And the Messiah will die, but not for his sin, for ours. He'll be pierced for our transgressions, and for the healing of our woundedness, he'll be wounded. Not because of anything he has done wrong, but because he is coming to bring healing to our brokenness. All of us know, you know, we may even make excuses for ourselves sometimes. We say, well, nobody's perfect, or I'm only, what, human, right? And when we say those kinds of things, what we're admitting is that at the core of what it means to be a human being in our world is a deep brokenness. A deep-seated sin, that's what the Bible calls it, a rebellion against God such that we don't do the things we ought to do and we do many of the things we ought not to do. And the Bible says here that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and when he's punished, it's what the purpose of that punishment is to bring us peace. That by his... Uh, that by his wounds that we would be healed. That that deep brokenness, that sin that we have, that desire we have to rebel against God and to do our own thing and to do what we ought not do and to refuse to do what we know we should, that that would be healed in the death of Jesus, in the death of Messiah. That he will, on top of that, that he will pay the full penalty for us. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That God requires death to pay for sin. And God says here through Isaiah that when Messiah comes, he's going to die. And that when he dies, that it's going to be on our behalf. And that his blood will cover over my sin and over yours. And in fact... The last several verses there, verses 7 to 12, talk about the Messiah's death, that he dies in our place. Uh, he's not just suffering, he also is dying. Uh, and in fact, he says that he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and like a sheep before his shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. When Jesus goes to trial, and he had several different trials over the course of the night, before Herod and before Pilate and before the Sanhedrin, and in every single case, he does not defend himself. He doesn't bring in character witnesses. He doesn't bring in anybody to testify on his behalf. In fact, what happens is, is that he is found innocent in every case because the testimony of those who testify against him doesn't agree it doesn't line up and so the the scripture says here by oppression and judgment he was taken away taken away to death what that means and who can speak of his descendants he was cut off from the land of the living His death was a massive injustice. There was no basis for a charge against him, and yet they condemned him to die anyway. His oppressors and his judges saw to it that he was going to die and that this great injustice was done. And he has no descendants. Despite what you may read in Dan Brown novels, uh, Jesus had no descendants. 
He was not married to anyone, had no children. And yet, and yet, that's not the end of the story. Keep reading. It says that, he'll, that the Messiah, when he comes, will be assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Did that happen? Yes, indeed. Where, where did Jesus die? He died outside the city on a hill called Calvary or Golgotha, the place of the skull. And he died hanging where? Between two thieves, the wicked. And when he, was, when he did die, where was he buried? In a borrowed tomb that belonged to a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea. Did this happen? Yes, it did. Verse 10 says that he will suffer all of this and die because his life and his death were a guilt offering to take away the sin of the people. And that even though he dies, he will see his offspring and God will prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Was this God's will that Jesus die? Yes, it was. Uh, did Jesus have offspring? Well, not in the natural physical sense, no. But do you see any offspring of Jesus? Look around. <laughs> okay. You and I and those who follow Christ are the offspring of Jesus. We are the sons and daughters adopted into God's family. God kept his promise. And verse 11 says that after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied that he will not stay dead, but he will be raised from the dead. Did that happen? Yep. I think that's safe to say, that the resurrection really happened, just like Isaiah said that it would. And on top of that, that his death, will, by his righteousness, he will justify many people. What does that mean? Well, to be justified is to be declared righteous before God. That as you stand before God, that God says, this one is mine, this one is innocent, on the basis of the death of the Messiah. Did that happen? Again, look around. Yes, it did. Happened to me, happened to many of you, happened to thousands and millions and even billions of people down through human history. Is that Was he justifying many? I would say that definitely qualifies as a lot. Okay? That by his death and his righteousness, he justifies many people. And, of course, verse 12, this is great. Verse 12, as this ends, says, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. It pictures the Messiah as even though he, is even though he has been defeated and killed, as raised to life and conquering, like a conquering general. Because when generals conquered, they divided the spoils of what they, of what they had taken from the enemy. Who is our enemy? Satan. Did he conquer Satan? Yes, he did. Did he conquer death? Yes, he did. Did he conquer hell? Yes, he did. And we, who Jesus redeemed, are the spoils of his victory. We are what he gains. Now, you may look at yourself in the mirror or look at your spouse or look at your family members and go, oh, I don't know if that was worth it. But to Jesus, it was worth it, that we are worth it. That 
because he poured, he poured out his life unto death for you and for me. And he was counted among the, um, in his own day among the wicked people. But he paid for the sin of those same wicked people who put him to death. And he paid for your sin and for my sin and for all the sin of every person who ever has lived or ever will live. And that is why we celebrate Christmas. That the coming of Messiah was not only promised, but it was fulfilled in exacting detail. Just as Isaiah said, again, 800 years before Jesus was born, all this was predicted. And all of it came to pass, just as God said it would. And all of it happened so that you and I could be reconciled to God himself, that we could have our sin forgiven, that we could be adopted into God's family, that we could be cleansed of everything that, that is wrong with us, that is broken and evil and sinful, and be welcomed at the end of our lives into the presence of the living God. Merry Christmas. Amen? Is that a good Christmas present or what? That is God's Christmas present to you and to me. He loved us enough that he sent his son... And all this happened according to God's specific plan. And he knew all of this would happen. And knowing this, he loved us enough to send the Son anyway. To be born into a barn. The God of the universe born to a peasant girl in a barn recognized and worshipped by a few foreigners and some sleepy shepherds and ignored by virtually everybody else, just as Isaiah said. And yet God did all this according to his plan because he loved you and he loved me. And it's because of God's great love for us that we celebrate and we proclaim the birth of Messiah because Messiah is not just coming. He has come. Amen? And he has come for you and for me. I don't know what everybody's spiritual status is here today. I don't know how many of you who are here um, have never done business with God to where you have come to him and said, God, I am a broken human being who is full of things that ought not be there and not full of things that should be there, who is a sinner, who deserves to be separated from you if you judge on a completely righteous standard. But I know that you said that your son would come and when he came that he died on the cross for me and that he didn't stay dead that just as Isaiah said that he saw the light of life again that he was raised bodily from the dead to give us a hope and a future that he would that if he could raise himself that he could also raise many people after him to new life and if you've never believed that let me offer you the ultimate Christmas present that anyone will ever give you the one that God gives, the gift of his son, who died on the cross for your sins and who was raised from the dead, proving that everything he said was true, that he was God, 
and that by his grace he could come to you and give you gift wrap this gift and say to you if you will just receive my son by faith then eternal life uh, that begins now and continues on into eternity a new kind of life where you walk by faith in God and he gives you his spirit will be all yours if you've never done that I invite you to do that today because Christmas if you do that takes on an entirely new meaning as you receive the best gift that has ever been given let's pray